The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. to laugh and make others laugh is natural to us all, but it has long been said that the clown's laugh is only skin deep. How deep is that skin? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and tin toy, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's dissertation explores the comic, the 1969 drama written, directed by, and featuring Carl Reiner, and starring Dick Van Dyke, Mickey Rooney, Michelle Lee, and Cornell Wilde. My guest is podcaster Tyler Adams, and you join us on the now-deserted backlot of a Hollywood studio. Hi, Tyler. Hello, Jeremy. So what can you tell me about Dick Van Dyke? Okay, well, I've seen all the, you know, I've seen all the films, the, the, the ones that everyone's seen. Uh, I, I remember him from a very early age from growing up in in New Zealand because he I don't know if you got the ads over here the Dick Van Dyke fire safety adverts no we Did just had over here? no we just had cameras prowling around burned out houses with the echoing cries of the dead <laughs> okay well uh Dick used to do a range of or a series of fire safety adverts back in the early 80s and um, and he would do things like he would say, imagine that my I'm in a burning house and my shirt is on fire. What should I do? And then he'd go, roll, Dick, roll. And he'd fall onto the floor and roll and roll and roll and 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 put these imaginary flames out. OK. And I remember him very clearly from from that uh, series of adverts. Uh, I. As I say, I've seen Mary Poppins, I've seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, uh, but. I guess in recent, more recent years, I really knew him from having, you know, having a, a, a teenage son who was obviously uh, you know, a few years back. I used to take him to the Night at the Museum films when they came out, and Dick's obviously one of the characters in that. Yeah. Um, and also, um, a, a young colleague of mine's got a crush on him at the age of whatever age he is now, ninety-six. She's in her thirties, and she's madly in love with Dick Van Dyke. Unrequited, but you know. She's got this weird sort of thing. She's got a weird thing for older men who you wouldn't expect, like Jim Carter. You know the actor Jim Carter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on there. Well, mm. Dick Van Dyke is an inherently lovable, likeable man. Um, he's shown in all his many musical films to be immensely talented, immensely charming. Um, in real life, he... You know, he's what Roy Castle could have been. Um, mm. uh, he's shrugged off, uh, well, not shrugged off, but sort of embraced and overcome problems in his own life. Um, he's uh, a recovering alcoholic and has been very, very open about his problems with alcohol. Um, his uh, 
car caught fire while he was in the middle of a traffic jam, and he narrowly escaped burning to death. And oh, then immediately posted mm. a picture of the, the burned-out husk on Twitter, asking if anyone wanted to buy it. Um, okay. He took up um, learning uh, computer animation at a late stage in his life, because he thought he would, it would be interesting and it was worth learning something new. And um, he's also famously very left-wing in his politics and has vocally supported mm. Bernie Sanders. Yes. So he's, yeah. you know, there's almost, uh, he's almost better than people. <laughs> well, he's, um, I know that you mentioned the, the alcoholism. The film that we're going to talk about today, I remember seeing, was it a Dick Cavett interview? Yes. Possibly, where he was, like you say, he was very frank about his battle with the bottle. And I would have, I think that the sort of period that we're going to be talking about, sort of late 60s, early 70s, was that the period where he lost entire years in terms of couldn't remember making certain films and stuff because he was drinking so much? I believe so. I think the comic was at the end of his run of being a movie star. Um, and I think there's there's a reason why this film has been almost completely forgotten. Um, but he did shortly after this switch to television, and one of only a few years after the comic, uh, he made a, a film called The Morning After, which was almost autobiographical in showing what alcoholism is like and about someone drinking themselves into completely destroying their own life. Right. Um, was it a comedy? No. This was the point where he was sort of not distancing himself from comedy, but saying, I could do this other stuff as well. Mm. The comic is... It's not a... It's not, it's not funny. Even, even the bits I think that are supposed to be funny aren't that funny, and I think that's deliberate. Um, and then you know, a couple of years later, he's in Columbo as one of as a murderer, oh, and he's great, yeah. and that's a, a, a straight dramatic role uh, as uh, a photographer who fakes his wife's kidnapping so that he can kill her, and it's a, a great performance and a great part. Um, yeah, it is. It, it, I, I remember the ending very clearly when Columbo says, "Sergeant, did you see what he just did there?" I'm not doing the voice. I'm like, Sergeant, did you see what he just did there? <laughs> and also, uh, Van Dyke made him look totally different. His hair is is greying. He has a a beard. Yes. He was sort of breaking up the the image that we had of Dick Van Dyke. And in the seventies, he only made two feature films: uh, Cold Turkey and The Runner Stumbles. Neither of which I've ever seen or you have heard of, perhaps. No. no. Um, and after that, he didn't make another film until Dick Tracy. And his next live-action film after that was uh, Night at the Museum in 2006. So he, so he was, he was doing the murder... What was it called? Murder... Diagnosis Murder. Diagnosis Murder. Which was yeah. ma- ran for, I think, well over a decade. It was massively successful. Mm. Um, so, yes, he, he moved towards drama and uh, be, still being a, a likeable lead, but in a more dramatic context... Um, yeah, and now, sort of, uh, in the later stage of his of his life, has moved back towards um, the the thing that made him a star. I mean, Mary Poppins Returns, uh, where, where he had to have old age makeup at the age of something like ninety four because he didn't look old <laughs> enough. <laughs> Bless him, I know. 
Yeah, it's it's still it's what's it, like you say he's he's very frequently on Twitter posting videos of him doing press ups or whatever, doing something very active anyway, uh, which is commendable. Or um, a video I saw of Gilbert Gottfried doing his Andrew Dice Clay impression to Dick Van Dyke, and Van Dyke was laughing his head off. I thought, the, you know, one filthy comedian doing an impression of another filthy comedian. And he couldn't get enough of it. OK, I don't want to race too far ahead, but I really enjoy, I've seen the comic before. It's the second time I've seen the comic. and But it's the second viewing where I really appreciated Dick Van Dyke's versati- versatility and comic timing. And I know you say it's not a comedy film per se, but the the uh, silent movie footage that we see with him as, you know, Billy Bright, he's amazing. And the reason I'm saying this now is that it, it does it does surprise me that, you know, in the 70s, he he he, did, he made two films and he didn't do a lot. I know Diagnosis Murder. I know the adverts from when I was a kid. What else did he do for the, you know, what, what's he been doing for the last 25, 35 years, really, apart from Tally and a few films? He, he, he seems underused to me. Well, I think he's at that stage in his career where he doesn't really have to do much anymore. I mean, he was in a revival of The Music Man in 1980, um, mm. which is a, a perfect role for him. Um but he just seems to have done a lot of TV, a lot of guest spots. I mean, in the early 70s, he did a, the new Dick Van Dyke show. Um, okay. And then he did another sitcom in the late 80s that was quickly cancelled. He's just, he's always been around. He's always been doing something. Um, or writing books or, um, you know, he's always doing something. It's just that it's never, never seems to be much at a time. He never, he mm. never, he's never away for long enough for people to wonder where he's been. Mm. Mm. He even started uh, tried to launching a new series at the the late two thousands uh, called Murder One Hundred and One, which um, got as far as a run of TV movies. Okay. Um, so he's he's always do- he's always doing stuff. Um, he was in Jim Carrey's series Kidding a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, as a an ex um, an ex children's television host. So, have you always been a not a fan, but a, have you always been fond of Dick Van Dyke? Well, I mean, I don't remember a time when I hadn't seen Mary Poppins mm-hmm. and hadn't been completely charmed by him. I mean, I've uh, there's the whole thing about the, the terrible accent, mm. but it's it's part of the charm. It's part of his personality that. His warmth and his charisma overrides the fact that he sounds like he's from the moon. Um, and he's he's trying to do something with it. I mean, it, you know, watch Sean Connery in The Hunt for Red October, and he is the most yeah. he is the most Lithuanian Glaswegian you'll ever hear. Yes, and The Untouchables. I think he does. In which he's playing an he, Irishman. Yeah, but I think he does an Irish accent for maybe three minutes tops and then just can't be asked and lapses back into his usual Edinburgh. Yeah, it's like Tom Cruise doing German at the beginning of Valkyrie. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm, another another film to conjure with. So, uh, uh, Mary Poppins and um, 
Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Never a Dull Moment, which is a, I think it's a Disney, it's, a, it's like a Disney version of a Hitchcock film of, um, you know, the wrong, wow. the wrong man gets involved with criminals and winds up having to save the day and that kind of thing. But it's a Disney film. So it'll have, it'll have someone like Buddy Hackett in it, I guess, if it's a, if it's a Disney film oh, from I, that period. Oh, I expect so. But but Dick Van Dyke mm. is the Cary Grant. Mm. Um, mm. And it's it's only... Sort of, I haven't really seen much of his later work. I mean, he's in Dick Tracy briefly in another straight role as a corrupt DA. Um, but he's he's not really done very much since, you know, the the turn of the 70s that I've watched. Yeah. I've just been aware of him always being this sort of cheery, benign presence, like a year-round Father Christmas who lives in California. Well, is, do, do Americans refer to national treasures, or is that... Yeah, but they mean, not? like, documents and sofas and things. Yeah, because he's he's the closest thing that they have got to a national treasure, I would say. Oh, I think it goes without saying that he's a national treasure. He's a global treasure. I mean, I would, you know, uh, if aliens came along, I would ask Dick Van Dyke to be um, the, our ambassador, because he would mm. say, oh, hello, how are you? And charm them immensely straight away. Mm. Even the Vulcans couldn't help but be you know, bowled over by his bonhomie. I just just quickly while we're talking, I'm just skipping through his IMDB listing, just to just to see what a what what a wide and varied collection of television he's worked on. The Mary Tyler Mary Tyler Moore hour, obviously. Super train. Oh oh a classic. <laughs> yeah. Uh Carol Burnett showed Tubby the Tuba, uh like Columbo like you say, you Scooby Doo movies. Bill Cosby show, jeez. Yeah. Well everyone was in that I suppose at the time. Mm. Fitzwilly strikes back. Mm, okay. Oh dear. Yeah. Scrubs, blimey. Um, so the uh, the film starts with an incredibly sinister title sequence, I think, and it has this odd sort of almost sinister circus music mm. playing over footage of a tin toy looking like Dick Van Dyke's character and do you think it sets the tone for the film that there's this there's it's comical but it's not funny yes I do there's there's a there's a grimness to it almost I, I a imagine, brother's grimness I imagine almost I imagine it's if ever the um Jerry Lewis film gets a release. The day, What's it called? The Day the Clown Cried. Mm. I imagine that, that the sort of title sequence we get in the comic wouldn't be amiss at the beginning of the Jerry Lewis film. It's that kind of melancholy, slightly creepy sequence. It just, it's, it just, yeah, it's a bit unnerving. Mm. I mean, the day of the clown cried is, I think, due for release in a couple of years, um, mm. because it's supposed to be ten years after Lewis's death, and we're coming up to that fairly soon. Right. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing it because, I mean, it 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 could it could be like um, 
Terry Gilliam's Don Quixote film, which is, you know, it's in development for 20 years and it eventually comes out and no one really goes to see it and the people who do. It's, it's, mm. Whereas there is no way that Jerry Lewis's film about a clown in Auschwitz who entertains mm. the children as he dances them into the gas chamber, there's no way that film is not going to be at an extreme end of a spectrum. That's not middle of the road stuff. It's it's either going to be genius or mm. insanely unwatchable. Mm. But you know, I mean, I can imagine it having this this kind of title sequence. It absolutely could. Mm. Um, the films. I mean, the film starts with a very Sunset Boulevard conceit that yes. we we observe the funeral of Billy Bright, um, star of the silent screen, who is also narrating. Um, and people say that they thought he died years ago. Um, and um, the organ plays Yes, We Have No Bananas, which was his signature tune. Mm. And Billy says in voiceover that this is the first time in his life that he got what he wanted. Which is not quite true. No. The, um, the president of the MPAA gives a eulogy, which... Billy introduces by saying, oh, here comes the crap. <laughs> he mentions his, um, his, his great classic, uh, Forget Me Not. Um, whilst uh, the president then receives a custard pie in the face, which it turns out was Billy's last request. <laughs> Flung by... Flung by his old friend, Mickey Cockeye. Mickey uh, Rooney. Played by Mickey Rooney, yeah. Mm-hmm. He mentions, and we see we see this later in the film. He mentions a film I'd love to see if it did exist: the Worry Warts in Mexico. Yeah, I, ooh. <laughs> Mexico plays a part in this film, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, there is a there is a, a, a sequence later on in Mexico when uh, Billy has a lost weekend that lasts um, a yes, couple of years, four years. Yeah. Mm. Um, we flash back to Billy as. Uh, a young man. He's left vaudeville for the movies, driven out to uh, California with all his possessions, packed up in his car, which he drives all the way to the location and gets out, and he's already in his stage gear. And it's this ridiculous, over-the-top outfit with a silly hat and big baggy trousers and clown makeup. And the, the producer refuses to film him dressed like that and tells him to go off and change at which point his uh, car goes over a cliff mm. is that funny no because I... I feel that it could be depending on how that's treated in the context that it's like his worldly goods and it just trundles over a cliff you can you know it's 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 comedy or tra- what what's the line? History repeats itself first as a oh, tragedy, yes. the second time as farce. Farce, yes. Um, yeah, but we're only seeing the tragedy. And I guess it just, it, it, it just, I guess the the his like you say, his all his worldly goods and his car going over the cliff. It just uh, uh, made him realise that. He's going to have to take off the clown makeup, and he's going to have to sort of knuckle down. Yeah, um, he's going to have to make his own luck from nothing. Mm. Um, 
so he uh, he start, he puts together a costume. He he discards a bowler hat uh, as an idea and finds his own hat, which is a sort of slightly um, uh, not quite a stovepipe or anything, but uh, this uh, sort of in, bet- in between. Yeah, hat. Yeah, I love the bit the the, the little bit of business with the moustache trimming. So he's trying on he tries on this moustache, which Mary, who's his co-star in this film she says well then it's a snub pollard you can't wear a snub pollard moustache so he trims it a bit and then she says well that's chester conklin so he, so he trims it completely to to chaplin yeah uh thought that was very good he's just trying to find he was trying he's trying to find his character um and like you say it's not a comedy film but He's he's doing comedy stuff in it. He's doing his his comic timing, it, and his it needs a talented comic actor to make the character work. Because as you say, there are the scenes where we see segments of Billy's films, and they have to yes. be believable as comedies with someone yes. who clearly knows how to do this. So you have to have someone like Dick Van Dyke who can do this stuff mm. relatively easily. But it's just that the material that he's doing is so rubbish. That's that's the problem that I had. That I felt that Billy is a second or third rate comic. Yes. Well, you see, I, I'm I'm no big fan necessarily. I haven't seen a lot of silent comedies. I'll, I'll be honest. I didn't grow up in a country where things like Harold Lloyd and Laurel and Hardy were repeated in the 80s a lot on TV. So I didn't I didn't grow up with that. And so I've got a bit of a know, tin ear for, for silent comedy, if you like. Um, but what I saw of those, there's like a montage of, I don't know, seven, eight, nine clips from his films at one point. Mm. And I thought they were really, really good. I thought they, they zipped along and they were... They were they were funny. I actually did laugh at the the thing when he's got the um, the coat stand stuck to his That's to it. his jacket. I've I've written down bits where I, you, I can see which um, which uh, comedians they're ripping off, and that that's pure Stan Laurel. Right. Um, I mean, we'll get on to that, but like each of them feels like it's just a, it's a weaker imitation of. A much more successful act, and this this bodes okay. this bodes well when if when you get round to seeing the originals because you are going to laugh yourself to death. Okay, so yeah, so I see what you're saying. So he's it, it, this stuff already exists. This has been done. A lot yeah. of this stuff's already been done. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That Billy, but even so, that Bi- Billy is just copying up or uh, vaguely altering the work of others. Or not just not doing any original material. It's all just sort of flat and bland, and oh, it's you know seen it before, and that's I think that's a big reason why, as well as his own sheer obnoxiousness, why his star fades. It's because his work just isn't that good. I mm. mean, there's you know like Chester Conklin, like I said before, Charlie Chase. There's a lot of comedians from around that time who faded quite quickly. Mm. And few made the transition successfully to sound. Um, but people like Buster Keaton never really bothered. Um, 
Yeah, that's the thing. I, I, did they try? Did most of them try to make that transition, or did a lot of them, like like Billy does in this film, just look down upon the whole notion of talkies and refuse to 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 get in the game? Well, Chaplin was famously resistant, uh, mm. of course, and it wasn't until The Great Dictator that he made a, a proper sound mm. film. Um, I think it was because these comedians tended to come up through um, the stage and through vaudeville and a kind of a pantomime-style performance, they were then fixed in what it kind of show that they could do. Um, Oliver Hardy is a rarity in that he didn't come up through that. He actually started out as a singer and then went straight into movies because he'd seen pictures and he'd been dismayed by how bad the acting was and thought he could do better, despite having no training at all. Um, so he came into, he came into comedy as a, a film actor mm. rather than a stage performer. So it was a different um, kind of discipline. And yeah. you look at Chaplin and Keaton, they were filmmakers so they were constructing the complete picture, unlike Stan Laurel, who was a writer and performer. Keaton Chaplin wrote, produced, directed, played the lead, mm. you know, Orson Welles style. So they could dictate what they was that what they wanted to do. Chaplin started to have more sound in his movies, but deliberately didn't speak. And it's not until a great dictator that he plays a character who speaks throughout. And even then the tramp figure doesn't talk until the end so I, I think a lot of comedians just weren't able to adjust weren't able to create a, a persona that could withstand the shift from silent to sound um, Chaplin avoided it Keaton pretended it wasn't happening Laurel and Hardy found a way through because they were a double act because then mm. conversation was natural Mm. And Oliver Hardy had that beautiful speaking voice. Um, Billy Bright just... He, he didn't have the vision. He didn't have the creativity. Mm. And some people, others, just didn't have the talent. So they start to film um, with the on the beach with the car still burning in the background. And <laughs> the, um, the sequence is... It looks like a knockoff of actually a film I've already done on Cinema Limbo, which is a Laurel and Hardy short called Men of War which is about right. um, sailors on shore leave trying to pick up girlfriends. Um, Billy is an ice cream man, and he's doing all kinds of sort of ice cream business with cockeye. And he winds up completely ignoring the script and improvising a whole sequence where he winds up rescuing the girl and going off with her at the end. That's the thing. The girl is, is Mary yeah. in the film. And a thing about this film zips along but it, it's it's quite abrupt in some of its uh the terms of the the plotting if you like because you have yeah yeah they they film this thing on the beach and then you see them watching the you know watching i don't know what is it the rushes or watching the watching it back in the projection room and then literally the next scene uh <laughs> he's in bed with mary and then the scene after that they're married yeah, and there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, Carl Reiner, the director, doesn't doesn't dwell on detail too much. It just it goes from I suppose it's an hour and a half film, but it goes from from Billy Bright as a young man to Billy Bright as a doddery old man in a convalescent home. But 
it does it it cuts out lots of it, it doesn't give it doesn't spoon feed you information does it it just sort of no speeds along. but it's all meat there's no there's no fat on this film there's no padding no. at all and yeah it is, no. it is it is about 90 minutes um mm. it's worth talking a little about Carl Reiner because few filmmakers have worked with such a wide range of comedians. I mean, he started out as almost Mel Brooks's straight man. Um, he directed um, uh, Steve Steve Martin's first couple of big hit big hits. Yeah, yeah. By the end, the jerk. Yeah. By the end of his career, yeah, he was working with um, uh, Steven Soderbergh. Um, mm. the, the famous comedian Steven Soderbergh um, on the uh, the Oceans films. That's right. Um, yeah. This you know, this extraordinary career and and you know, dozens of other projects and dozens of other star names in between. Um, it, it given that he directed comparatively few films, it's a shame that this one's overlooked, particularly because it was his debut. And he's in it as well, briefly, in a scene stealing performance. I would say. Yeah, it's it's a a, um, a restrained performance, I think, because. I feel like he knows this isn't a comedy. I'm playing. I'm going to play this straight, but I am going to dominate the yes. the atmosphere of the scene because of what I'm going to do and say. Yes. Of course, he he'd been he wrote the Dick Van Dyke Show or what became the Dick Van Dyke Show, but originally it was going to be him. In that oh, show, I didn't know it? that. I believe, and then. Yeah, so I don't know whether it was going to be the Carl Reiner show or whatever, but he he either filmed a couple of like pilots or whatever and then decided, no, I'll bow out from the acting. I'll just write it, and it could be a vehicle for Dick Van Dyke. Um, well, that, uh, that helps to explain how this came about then, perhaps, because um, Van Dyke and Reiner had been working together on that for so long that mm. Van Dyke was happy to trust Reiner in making this film that was potentially damaging to his image of having him of having him play a comedy actor who's actually a total shit yeah yes he is a total shit but he's not that bad he's not a he's not a, a moustache twirling villain no he no he's but he's a realistic believable person that you could imagine someone like that existed or that there was someone who behave mm. like this? But he is, mm. he is a thoroughly rotten, unpleasant person. I so, said, yeah, yeah, he doesn't go around murdering people or anything. Nothing, <laughs> nothing, you know, absurd or melodramatic. He's just a really unpleasant, self-centered, selfish person. Yes, he's he's, he's very very little self-awareness. He's a womanizer. Yeah. Uh and bitter and <laughs> at in, the end as well. Yeah, and incapable of accepting any criticism. Yes. Very um, monomaniacal in that way. Um, he uh, asks Mary out to dinner, and they, uh, they go out. And um, they wind up going back to Mary's place, and they sleep together. And then the producer comes in, because, of course, the producer and Mary have an arrangement... Uh, so the producer beats the living daylights out of Billy, and it's sort of played 
it's almost played like it's a, like a slapstick scene, but you're left in in no doubt how badly Billy has been injured. Yeah, you're right. It is. It's not a comedy, but it's 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 kind of it's it's towing the line. It's using the way the audience expects comedies to work. It's a little like perhaps the life and death of Peter Sellers, just oh. to steer this back towards. Yeah. Uh, your wheelhouse, and that's a film that I really love, but it it's using like the the style and the context of Sellers films to tell quite a sad, serious yes. story. Yes, you're you're absolutely right because they recreate. But there's but but even there's there's sort of bits incorporated into the story. Like there's a, there's a scene where Sellers is on the toilet, and I think it's when Brett Eklund tells him that he's that she's leaving him. Mm. And he pulls off the the piece of the toilet roll, and the whole toilet roll unravels, which is a mm. gag from the party. Party, yeah. Mm. Um, or towards the end, where Blake Edwards sees him standing in the snow outside the restaurant, because he's mm. being Chance from being there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's a very good comparison. Yeah, thank you. I thought you'd appreciate it. Mm. <laughs> um, but. Um, Billy proposes to Mary, and um... well, he manages. The only way he can stop Frank, the producer, from beating the shit out of him is by, or, or no, she she stops it by saying, "We're married," doesn't she? Oh yes, and in retrospect, Billy su- suspects that it was a manoeuvre, yes, on their part, and that he was far too generous. Yes, cut to their cut wedding. to wedding day. Their... And yes. and his wedding present for her is a film company, the, the <laughs> called Billy Bright Productions. Mm. And um, she's very uncertain and awkward about this. And he says, "Well, if you don't want to do this, then say so. I'm, I'll tell everyone else to take five. I thought that is 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 this, is this negging? Is this gaslighting?" It's something mm-hmm. like that. It's not good. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's, it's, it's similar to when someone in a position of authority says something to a subordinate and then says, wouldn't you agree? It's very difficult for that subordinate to say Ex- no. Except it's not just a subordinate. It's his wife. Well, true. And there's a whole other dimension as well on top of that. So, mm. yeah, I'm not, I don't know what the name of this is, but I don't like it. Mm. And then we see the montage of some of the movies that we make together. We make together. They make together. I've not been in the film with you, <laughs> Doctor Jerk and Mister Hyde, which is very good. I thought. We've got this. Well, there's, get... there's there's the whole shoe throwing fight, which is Laurel mm-hmm. and Hardy's Battle of the Century. There's uh, the, the perils of Pauline style rescue, the coat rack bit, which is yeah. again I will concede that is brilliantly performed by Dick Van Dyke. He yeah. really knows how to do this. I just think it's just not sufficiently original material. This is why I am more impressed by this than than you are because you, you because I know all you've seen all yeah. this before. Because mm. you're coming to this with a completely fresh perspective, which is great. Mm. But I know what all the tricks are. I flatter well, myself. Don't get me wrong, by the way. Uh, yeah, I, I have been watching um, with. Uh, our mutual friend Tilt, actually, um, some Laurel and Hardy shorts and and a uh, few features, uh, and it was off the back of that that we watched the comic 
couple of years ago. That's oh. when I first watched the comic. And um, so don't, 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 I'm not complete. I'm not a complete ignoramus when it comes to, you know, the stuff. But I, it's just something that I never grew up with and never. I, I, I am impressed by what I've seen, but I never tend to laugh out loud at what I've seen. You know what I mean? Well, I would really recommend Men at War because right. I remember when I was prepping that and I mean, watching it and making notes, I was laughing so much that someone came to check on me that, to see that I was okay. See, here's the thing. I don't want to derail the conversation here, but from what I've seen of Laurel and Hardy, and I've seen a f- f- quite a bit now, not a lot, but a bit, I much, 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 much prefer Oliver Hardy to Stan Laurel. I find Stan Laurel leaves me a bit cold. Interesting. Mm, what does that say about me? <laughs> I think Stan, uh, Oliver Hardy looking at the camera, you know, breaking the fourth wall. It's wonderful, that sort of thing. It I is. Love. It is. <laughs> but I love, uh, like, Stan's weird flights of logic. Um, but in, in, I keep going to back to Men of War because it's one that's so fresh in my mind. Um, mm. uh, Ollie buys a, a soda for them both to drink because they don't have enough money to buy uh, one for each of them. And gives, gives it to Stan and says, Here, you drink your half. And Stan drinks the whole thing. And Ollie says, Do you know what you've done? Stan nods gently. He says, Well, why did you do it then? And Stan says tearfully, My half was on the bottom. That's uh, that could have come out of a goon show. I know. I was about to say that's it's a very good show idea. And then, of course, you get mm. Ollie looking at the camera. Oh, this idiot! I've got to deal with. <laughs> and then, and then, just shoves him really hard so he falls out of frame, which I think is always hilarious. Uh, well, I gave it the. I gave it the. And I don't want to again. I don't want to preempt what you what probably want to talk about a little bit later. But I gather that this the whole uh, making of this film was inspired by. Stan Laurel, or he was a big influence on the on the making of the film. Yes, um, late late in his life, Laurel uh, had retired after uh, Oliver Hardy had died, but he kept his name in the phone book, and mm. he would frequently receive guests. Major names uh, would come and visit, like Dick Van Dyke, Peter Sellers, mm-hmm. just just to just to meet him, if not to you know talk comedy and talk professional advice and Dick Van Dyke felt that he would have really fit in as a silent comedian he would have been very successful uh, or, or really enjoyed working in film in that time and I feel that Carl, Carl Reiner wrote the script almost as a riposte to say nah you wouldn't <laughs> nah, you're, better, you're better off now because I mean, Stan Laurel had a really awful personal life. Um, he was married, I think, eight times. Um, Jesus. Paid off. Uh, you know, had to pay a lot of alimony to a lot of people. Uh, he had drinking problems. His he had a daughter die very young. Uh, oh. Really terrible things he had to go through in his life. And Oliver Hardy had all sorts of other personal problems as well. Um, yeah. Towards the end of their lives, they became much more settled. And uh, Stan. Stan's last marriage lasted for at least 15 years and they were very happy. Mm. Um, so he did sort of settle down, uh, fortunately. But, um, you know, you only hear about the good parts. You only, you only watch the movies and say, oh, how wonderful it must have been. So, no, it was bloody murder. 
because yeah. Stan was having to, you know, he would film all day, then he would have to go off and write. He was having to fend off Hal Roach, the producer, who was always, you know, trying to stick his oar in and, and deliberately kept uh, Laurel and Hardy on different contracts that didn't synchronise. So he, he would always make sure that they couldn't leave because all, one of them would ah, always be under contract. Right. Clever. Yeah. Um, mm. And then when they eventually were able to leave, and ah, oh, now we've finally got freedom, we can go to a big studio. The big studio gave them no freedom at all. And 20th Century Fox just handed them scripts and says, here, do it. And the films they made at Fox are dreadful. So I believe, yeah. I've, yeah. Se- I've seen all of them. They are crap. What did you think of the Stan and Ollie film? Um, I'm kind of in two minds about it because although I think it's really affectionate it genuinely loves the men and the comedy um, and it's very sympathetic to them it had to make up an awful lot so that it worked as a script Um, the supposed bad blood between them is pretty much entirely fictitious Um, there was a when one of them was under contract and the other wasn't, Oliver Hardy made a film with Harry Langdon, which did poorly, and all supposedly that was, you know, something Stan Laurel was very bitter about. He wasn't. He actually considered it, uh, you know, that, you know, he, Oliver, Oliver Hardy's got to work. He's under contract. He's got to do that movie. You know, I'm just going to have to live with it. And he didn't have a choice. Mm. So it manufactures a lot of this stuff in order so that you can have the the highs and lows of a conventional script structure. Um, But the bits where it works, like when they're doing a sketch on stage, and we're just watching them doing a sketch on stage, and it's Steve Coogan and John C. Riley as Laurel and Hardy, and you're basically just watching a new Laurel and Hardy sketch. Mm -hmm. And there's a a bit where we... uh, see like an imagined scene from the proposed Robin Hood film that they're going to make which was never made and it's Stan and Ollie in Technicolor on a you know this, this forest set and it's just a quick scene where I thought that's basically it looks like a new Laurel and Hardy film because it looks mm. just like it and Coogan and Riley are perfectly cast and they are absolutely brilliant in their roles yeah I enjoyed the film even though I didn't really know much about the background the history yeah um, it's, and i just thought that they were great it captures the men i think very accurately even if the story that it's telling it's had to embellish a bit um mm. but mm-hmm. not so much as to be a problem i don't think one story that i love actually it's, it's still talking about laurel and hardy um <laughs> uh, their very last live performance was in dublin and in the audience was Ray Bradbury. Oh, okay. And years later, he wrote a short story about the ghosts of Laurel and Hardy haunting the steps up which, decades earlier, they had tried to carry that piano. And their oh. ghosts are still trying to deliver it <laughs> today. And um, it's as though that they're they're still there because they feel that if they pass away their memory will pass away with them and someone oh. who encounters them says no don't worry your 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 films will love will be loved forever and then the piano falls down the steps and they chase after it and they sort of disappear into 
into the ether as they're chasing this piano into the afterlife. <laughs> That's the music box, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But that's that's the one that everyone's seen or seen it was, clips of. It was their their Oscar winner. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, the comic. Yeah, I mean, well, well the other films he's done is uh, Doctor Jerk and Mister Hyde, which yes, uh, again, he, <laughs> um, Dick Van Dyke's performance in that as he's keeps rapidly switching between the two is very funny, but yes. it also felt very Bud Abbott. Yeah. Now you can just mention that, yes. I mean, it's he's doing it better than Bud Abbott, I would say, because I don't think Bud Abbott's funny. Um, no. And the dentist's skit is very Three Stooges. Mm. And Saved by a Sap. That was, that was a great great title, at least. Yeah, that's... I, I can imagine there being like a, a Charlie Chase short. Yeah. Like that. Um in voiceover, he says that all he ever wanted was love and understanding as he um, starts to uh, commit adultery. Mm. <laughs> On an industrial scale. On an industrial scale, exactly, yeah. Mary comes to the set and uh, he's complaining, oh yes, the girl I was working with, oh she's oh she's impossible. Oh. And um, he sort of wheedles out of Accusation says, "Oh, we were oh, we were just horsing around because he um, he holds the the kiss for the fade out of the film. He holds it a lot longer than he needs to, mm. like mm. a creep. I mean, yeah. Mm. Dick Van Dyke playing someone who could who would be cancelled immediately. I mean, much more of a risk now than in 1969. I think." When people were yeah. still giving Roman Polanski money, although they are, <laughs> they they're still giving him money now, but only in France. Very true. He's yeah. had, I think, he's had at least two, maybe three films out since his last film was released in the UK. Roman Polanski. Right. I wonder. Meaning what? Uh, meaning he can't get released outside France anymore. <laughs> really. Uh, well, well, continental. Yeah, but has he has he done? Sorry, maybe have have I missed the news? Has he done? More stuff he's, recently. He's still to... working. He's still making. Oh, movies. No, he's still working. I mean, the pianist is a great film. I, I thought. Yeah, um, but uh, the last film of his, I think, that was released in the UK was Venus in Furs. Right. And he's made at least three, uh, two films since then, and a third completed. And none of them have been picked up by distributors for the UK. Okay. Yeah, objectionable man must be knocking on a bit now as well. Yeah, he's pushing ninety now. Yeah, um, yeah. but so's Woody Allen, and his last couple of films haven't been coming mm. out of the UK either. Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of coming up in the in the film. There's a couple of directorial choices that are quite interesting, uh, where they're driving, <laughs> Mary's driving home or driving back with having seen him having the lingering kiss with the actress, they're driving back and he's trying to, she's trying to basically make him admit that he's having an affair. And he, he does that real sort of controlling thing. Well, I can't believe you're asking me that stop the car and gets out the car. And then she drives off and it's, and, and it, we, we see him from the point of view of the, you know, somebody sitting in the back of the car, we see him sort of standing there in the road and then it sort of turns a corner and it just, 
just an interesting is it a filmic or cinematic metaphor for something i don't know um that he's he's constantly being left behind ah there you go. and he's choosing to be left behind he chooses to get out of the car and abandon his wife he chooses to carry on making silent pictures in the old style after okay. sound has taken over Chap- mm. chaplin was figuring out how to make non-speaking pictures rather than silent because like modern times is not a silent film but it doesn't have dialogue right. that's the difference yeah. um but he's you know no i'm right i'm going to stick to what i know i'm the stubborn one and everyone else is just doing doing other stuff moving on with their lives and he's yeah. and he's just sticking sticking there stewing in his own bitterness mm-hmm. um there's a payment made to an extra which is apparently for an abortion oh which is dicey stuff i wondered what that was about yeah right um again dick van dyke very confident how much the public likes him <laughs> i mean yeah we do but <laughs> um and um he uh, is pitching ideas for a, a a feature and he goes to a producer named atlas for financing and she mm. has a very beautiful wife yes um he tries he resists for oh all of five minutes i mean yeah. i've 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 eaten eggs that lasted longer <laughs> And this feature is Forget Me Not. Yes, and we see uh, an excerpt from it, and it's it reminds me of uh, the Lauren Hardy film Pardon Us, where they okay. do, do go to prison. But it's so um, offensively sentimental that it really reminds it. It looked like a parody of Chaplin. That he comes mm. out of prison to to meet his beautiful girl and she's blind, and mm. I actually that is I think the one time that I laughed, because it was so over the top. Oh yeah, obviously she's going to be blind, because otherwise it just wouldn't be. It wouldn't be melodramatic enough. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and that's and obviously that's a list from that lift from City Lights. I mean, it's you, you can't say that Reiner and Van Dyke don't know their stuff because they're they're cherry picking from across the board. I think of all these these great uh, silent comedians and silent performers and silent comedies, and mixing it all up into this one filmography, um, mm. it shows that they really love the material, um, but they're they're deliberately sort of it's like a photocopy of a photocopy. It's Third generation. Third generation. It's a fuzzy mm. and it doesn't quite work. Chaplin mm. could make that kind of thing work. And you know, City Lights could be really horrendous. But it works because there's a sincerity behind it, I think. And there isn't with Billy Bright because he is an incredibly insincere man. Mm. Mm. I mean, you know, these days or certainly the last 20, 30 years, I guess because of the internet and social media and people being able to seek out like-minded people, um, you know, the great stars, Lauren Hardy, Chaplin, etc., are still being lionised and lauded. But when this film comes out, 
was were these guys genuinely unfashionable if you know what i mean in terms of they were just seen as passe and ignored there had been a move in the sort of the mid to late 60s to uh, repackaging and re-releasing um some of the more popular silent comedians like lauren hardy chaplin and keaton principally uh, and there were a bunch of um compilations released put together by robert youngson like the golden age of comedy laurel and hardy's laughing 20s four clowns that tried to bring these to a new audience and the films were at the very least keeping them in the public imagination um by this point as well um serious film criticism was really taking off as new hollywood was just coming okay out. And yeah. they were there was a huge appreciation there for silent cinema and the silent comedians. Um, Chaplin won his Oscar finally in 1972 for Limelight. Um, I think 15 years after it was made, it finally got a qualifying release for the Oscars. Okay. Um, and then a couple of years later, he won his Lifetime Achievement Award. Was that because he'd been blacklisted that it was unreleased i think so yeah it, i think it came out in new york or something like that and generally around europe but it had never been shown in los angeles and it had to be shown in los angeles to qualify for right. the oscars right okay um so there was a more serious appreciation and like like i said van dyke and peter sellers and many others would meet with stan laurel and mm. yeah you know, he he was happy to you know, have guests in his little home and there was an appreciation of him as an elder statesman of comedy um, given that um, Keaton was kind of still working actually because he died in 66 I think but Keaton at the end of his life I mean he made a film with Samuel Beckett um, <laughs> Didn't Keaton turn up in Sunset Boulevard as well? Yes, but that was like 10 yeah. years earlier. I think Keaton's last film was A Funny Thing Happened at the Way to the Forum. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But I mean, supposedly Samuel Beckett was once approached with uh, by a producer and said, oh, we'd like to make a film of uh, Waiting for Godot. And Beckett right. said, oh, that's very interesting, but I, I I, don't know how that would work. So, oh, you know, well, we can, you know, we would, step, we would maybe shoot it on location and film it. Yeah, yeah, but what about the dialogue? I mean, how are you going to do that in a silent film? Because he didn't really have much awareness that sound movies were a big thing. Um, right. So he he wrote an original script for Buster Keaton, uh, a half-hour film called Film, um, which is about a man who's trying to um, protect himself from being observed. Uh, and it's very uh, it's very Samuel Beckett, yeah. Um, yeah. and the script is incredibly detailed about how things should be angled compared to the camera, and that kind of thing. It's very 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 um, defined. Um, so while you know Keaton was moving in these sort of arty spheres, perhaps Laurel was still, you know, people were asking him about well, what's the funniest way to throw a pie in someone's face? You're, mm. the, you're the expert. Well, while Chaplin was living in Switzerland, um, writing stories for his daughter to not be in. Okay. Supposedly, Chaplin was going to make a film with. Um, oh, I don't misremember this. Is I was going to make a film with Satchidit Ray at one point, I think, about about an alien. Oh no, um, what was it? Well, Peter Sellers was going to make 
film. That was it, yeah. Peter Sellers was going to make the film with Satyajit Ray. Yes, um, yes. Chaplin was going to make a film about a girl who grew wings. And he was going to cast his daughter. Okay. And that didn't happen because no one wanted to give him any money. <laughs> okay. So he wrote so he wrote his autobiography instead, and that was a massive success. And it's still a huge bestseller. Didn't his body get stolen? Does yeah. the coffin get stolen or something? Yeah, they got it back, though. Right. Okay. Unlike Alistair Cook. The, le- the, the Letter from America guy, his body was stolen. Never seen again. What? Yeah. Alistair Crowley, I can believe, but Alistair Cook? Yeah, supposedly um, like um, Resurrection Men, but present-day Resurrection Men. Wow. Horrible. I didn't know such, uh, such things still existed. I know. But, um, yeah, okay. awful. Um, anyway. So anyway, back in the world of comedy, mm. um, Billy has served papers as correspondent in the Atlas divorce, and he served these papers at the premiere of Forget Me Not. Mm. And as, as though history repeats itself first as comedy and second as farce, or the other way round, um, earlier this year, of course... Um, Olivia Wilde was served divorce papers in the middle of making a presentation to the, I think it was like the theatrical uh, exhibitors organisation in the US. He was served divorce papers, she was served divorce papers uh, in the middle of making her speech. Right. Um, Apparently her husband, uh, uh, soon-to-be ex-husband Jason Sudeikis, did not intend that, but... um, Oh. The uh, the law firm knew that's where she was going to be, so they uh, just handed her the papers while she was on the stage. <laughs> Maybe the guy was a fan of this film, and he thought of a little little nod. Well, I've, I, the film was "Don't Worry, Darling," and I've seen it, and it's dreadful. Okay. Um, but, but but Billy but Billy says he says this is the greatest this was the greatest day of my life or greatest night of my life. You know the actual premiere. Yeah, he's, he's reached the he's reached the top. He's he feels that you know this is uh, things is, things things can only get better from here. And then, like you say, yeah, gets served the papers, and then again, there's this almost like smash cut to him drinking heavily and <laughs> and being aggressive. And, and pun- he punches Cockeye, the one person who's always Cockeye. stuck up, stuck by him, drives to the. House of um, Frank Powers, um, mm. with whom uh, Mary has become close, and and drives right in through the front door and partly up the stairs. Yeah. Um, and it's only at that point does Cockeye able to tell him that he's done that to the wrong house. Yeah, Cockeye could have probably stopped him from ransacking the house long before he actually does. Because all he does is say, Billy! Uh, Billy, he should have just shouted. Oh, you're in the wrong house. But he was he was in a raging drunk though. He's not going to listen. No, he knows no. best. He knows best about everything. Mm. And it, yeah, I said that. Yeah, that could be funny. The idea of you know, it's quite a Laurel and Hardy thing of smashing up someone's house and told no, no, that you want them to the house across the street. Um, but it's but, a, but a, a cousin of this gag, if you like. Yeah, but, the, but is is with the kid later on. Yeah, but it's it's not funny. It's just sad. Mm. Um, and it, the whole bit ends, and there's a really unnerving, abrupt cut, 
as Billy slowly pushes his head through a glass window pane. <laughs> and it's really nasty and strange. And we cut to him drunk in a Mexican bar as he's eating disgusting chilli. And some some brassy dame. Yeah. And mm. um they're gonna get married and he's drinking himself into a blackout. And um uh Cockeye comes to help him dry out and he's just this sprawling vomit stained drunk being licked by a cat. And Cockeye calls him Ah, <laughs> oh, there he is, the most distinguished artist of our time. <laughs> Uh, but like you say, he, cl- he cleans himself up. He does. He he smartens himself up and and dries out a bit, and he comes back home to see his family, and he uh, sees the you know the boy playing outside the front of the house, and oh, they've brought him a toy and got him a teddy, and he's got a little wind up toy version of himself because obviously he's got loads of those in the attic, mm, like which is what we saw in the opening credits. Yeah, like the uh, the Alan Partridge blazer badge and uh, tie <laughs> c- combination. <laughs> Yeah, mm. and um, he's got a very awkward reunion with Mary, and he says, "Oh yes, oh, I've been, oh yeah, I've been making films overseas, and yeah, we're talking about uh, uh, other other projects, and and you know, so, oh, the thing about the French is they've got no sense of humour, which I think might be a dig at Jerry Lewis, mm. because Jerry Lewis isn't funny. No, no, <laughs> he is in King of Comedy. I mean." Yeah, he's he's funny when he's not in charge. That's the thing. I mean, of all the comedians we've been talking about, the one who's closest to who Billy Bright's actually like is Jerry Lewis, in terms of personality, yeah. because yeah. he was apparently an absolute bastard. Yes, arrogant and uh, a bully. Yeah. I believe. Mm. See, but Billy does that thing. I hate this in films where you've got a character who. Who speaks over another character who's clearly is clearly wanting to deliver some difficult information or news, or is clearly you know Ma- Mary is clearly very very feeling very awkward and feeling very uncomfortable, and Billy's there just not letting her get a word in. Billy's there just talking everything, talking himself up and talking her up. Um, with the I guess the implication is that he's he wants to give it another go with her, and then she obviously. Delivers a body blow that she and Frank Powers are going to get married. Yeah, uh, and adopt, and and Frank is going to adopt Billy Junior. Mm. Uh, apparently, he's a very loving fiance and father figure, and he sounds like a really great all round guy, and that's good. But oh, by the way, Frank, what's his name? Frank Powers. Yeah, I didn't realize when I was watching it. It was only when I looked uh, looked up on IMDb. It's Cornell. Wild, or Cornell Wild. Yeah. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Uh, I, 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 have you ever seen The Naked Prey? No. Well, that's this. That's Cornell Wild running through um, an African savanna um, in a loincloth, oh, being oh, chased. Oh, is, is he the Naked Prey? Yes. Oh, being hunted down. It's one of those naughty films. No, it's um, it's a film that. I really enjoyed the first half, and then I really hated the last half. And I'm not going to say anymore. Oh. If you ever get a chance, uh, there, there's some very problematic scenes. Oh, uh, yeah. Hollywood film set uh, in Africa in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, supposedly the only reason John Houston made the African Queen is so he could go there and shoot an elephant. <laughs> speaking, wow. speaking of directors who are horrible, mm. and who was in a who was in a film with Roman Polanski. Who was it that was it? A. A. Gill that shot a baboon because he wanted to know what it felt like to kill a human being or, or the closest thing to a human being or something like that. A. A. Gill. I mean, I don't want to say I was glad when he died, but I didn't not cry. No. No. I'm, no, hang on. I didn't not cry. I didn't, I I didn't, didn't cry. cry. Did, did. <laughs> yeah, I didn't cry, I didn't is what you wanted to say. Yeah, I didn't cry. Mm. I mean, it's not as bad as when um, uh, Justice Samuel Alito died, in which case I actively cheered. What about Clarkson when that day comes? Oh, have you, I mean, listener, we're recording this just before Christmas for context. Mm. So there's mm. the story that's come out. Well, the story. The column that he decided to write for money about um, how much he hates Meghan Markle. And, mm. um, oh, it's, oh, he's just joking. It's just a joke, like on Top Gear. And it is absolutely despicable. The lowest kind of anything. Racist, misogynist garbage. I hope he burns in hell. Did you see he's issued a non-apology? Oh, that was fucking bullshit. Mm. <laughs> he's a disgrace to the name, as there, as many of them are. Jeremy Vine, now do me a favour, had an argument with him on Twitter. What about cycling or something? Um, it might have been, actually. Mm. Well, whatever it was, I was right. Okay. I mean, I know that sounds like the kind of thing Billy Bright would say, but um, <laughs> Jeremy Vine was being a real dick. Say it ain't so. <laughs> I know. So hard to believe. <laughs> um, so uh, the news that um, basically Frank Powers is taking his family away, um, Billy decides to grab the boy and make a, uh, make a getaway. Um, but it turns out the boy he's been talking to is actually the housekeeper's son. And his son's been inside the whole time. And he doesn't know yeah. which is uh, his own son anymore. Yeah. Uh, which kind of undermines his whole case. <laughs> you are quite a bad father if you don't know what your son looks like. So he meets with him. Yeah, he's, he's been away. He's been he's been away living the high life, not high life, living the low life for the last four four years or so, hasn't he? True, but uh, they do look different and have different hair color. Yeah, I mean, it's not like uh, he's the the boy he's been talking to is uh, Puerto Rican or anything, or of a different. No. Obviously, different nationality or um, ethnic group, but mm. it's he's different enough. Yeah. Um, Billy meets with his agent, Carl Reiner, mm. and we find out that <laughs> Billy's career is basically done. That um, he was going to make a new picture, but no, that's been cancelled. Anyone to make sound pictures now? If you want to carry on working, Billy, you're going to have to make sound picture. And he refuses. No, I know best. I'm going to make silent pictures because that's what people want. Because I am Billy Bright and I know everything. <laughs> yeah. Which is the wrong thing to say. Yeah, because Carl Reiner gets very angry and annoyed. <laughs> Again, not... Yeah, he says, he, sa- he says his last four pictures were disasters. Um, and he'd made films in France, hadn't he? He says he did. Yeah. I mean, he's telling Mary that he did, but that's that could be true. But I wouldn't bet on it. Mm. 
Um, again, Carl Reiner, not known as a serious actor, but he again, he plays the role totally seriously, and it's quite brutal. Yeah. He's, the, he's basically the only person who ever tells Billy off to his face and gets away with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we, we jump forward again to the funeral cortege as the... <laughs> you see, it has this, this motorcade of four cars, but then the one at the back pulls off yes. and drives away, away yeah. because it's, it's, it's just another car that happened to be there. <laughs> That was funny. That was funny. Because he was imagining, because Billy's saying, oh, you know, he's, he's imagining a huge funeral if he died 40 years earlier. Yeah. You know. This this lavish state funeral, t- ticker tape yeah. parade and everything. And Mar- Mary would be sorry as well. Yeah. Isn't it the narration says something about, oh, here, um, uh, accompanied by his stupid wife? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> that's just so, That... I'll admit that's funny because it's just so blunt. Yeah, his stupid wife. <laughs> that's a Homer Simpson line. Yeah, it's it? not even that's like an elaborate or bitter insult. It's just like a eight-year-old. It is, but but that, that whole bit where he's imagining this room—that is straight out of Homer Simpson's head. Yeah, like the um, the fake uh, ice cube with the fly in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but then we. Uh, we're, we're jumping around in, in time because we go to um, Billy living in an apartment with uh, with Cockeye. No, we're not. No, that well, yeah, we're at older Billy, but he meets Cockeye in the he park. He meets Cockeye in the park, and they're now it's the it's present day basically, late sixties. They're both old men, and Billy's just had new teeth put in. Um. So we get to see Dick Van Dyke's presumably real, very white teeth. Yeah. And it was bugging me for ages, because I was thinking, who does he look like? Because it's Dick Van Dyke made up to look like a, I don't know, 60-year-old man, 60-plus. Dick Van Dyke made up to look old, and looking older than he does now in real life at nearly 100. Yeah. Yeah. But he looked... I couldn't work out who who he reminded me of. And then I thought, it's it's Christopher Plummer. Old oh, Christopher yeah. Plummer. That's who he. That's who he looked like. Yeah. Uh, Billy bets that he can still do a a pratfall in the park, and uh, yeah. and he does. And it's again, it's impressive technical work by Van Dyke. Um, yes. And he's he's so he complains that he could have owned a huge stretch of Los Angeles and invested in property. Uh, but he never did, and Chaplin never became a citizen of America. But he's lauded as a genius, and oh, and um, he winds up taking out an ad in Variety, saying that he's still alive and looking for work, and that lands him a spot on the Steve Allen show. Mm. Big um, talk show host of the time. Yep, um, appearing as himself, and I mean, say. Oh, he's playing himself, and he's great. Well, he's he's playing himself, but he has to play along with this whole thing that he's doing, that he's interviewing this character who's Dick Van Dyke in heavy old age makeup, and it has to be completely real and natural. And I think that's probably quite tricky. Yeah, I imagine so. I mean, it's that and Michael Parkinson in Ghost Watch, 
and then where <laughs> then that that exhausts the list of great performances in movies by chat show hosts. Uh, uh, back to King of Comedy. Was there any? I'm trying to think. Were there any real life chat show hosts depicted? Well, it's that? not Carson. Um, Tony Tony Randall turns up, and he filled in for Carson a few times. Oh yeah, so I'll give you that. Hmm. I was trying to think. David Letterman's not been any, in anything. Uh, John Stewart in The Faculty. <laughs> Jay Leno in The Silver Bears. Oh, I don't know that one. I think. Anyway, I've to look that up. Um, James Corden. Who do you think, who, who's the oh, James oh, Corden? Up. James Corden in Cats. Oh yeah. James, Cor- <laughs> James Corden in Peter Rabbit. Uh, I'd like to see James Corden in prison. It could be arranged. Who's, who's the guy in the, the, the kind of freaky looking guy in the orange shirt? Slightly patronizing, hippie-ish kind of guy sat next to I don't know. I th- Billy Bright. I think, he looked familiar and I couldn't work that I out. Think that, I think that's just a character. I don't think that's a real person. I think it's just that's the kind of person. The, the kind of person that. who would be on the Steve Allen show. Yeah. In the same way. I mean, yeah. I watched a clip earlier today of... Um, uh, from uh, the Tonight Show with with Carson, where he was interviewing um, uh, Jim Henson, okay. and Henson came on with Kermit, and uh, at the first he's he's talking to Kermit, and the camera is close on Kermit, <laughs> and Kermit is being a Kermit's being a real dick. He's he's not answering the questions properly and being difficult, and then he starts talking to Jim Henson about how he made Kermit and what you know the puppet and everything. And Henson's sort of picking at the po- picking and poking at the puppet, and Kermit's kind of looking down at where he's being picked and poked at. <laughs> it's like, what, what the hell are you doing? Get off! Genius. Yeah. <laughs> um. But um, yeah, Billy talks on the show about uh, you know his career. He's st- he's still performing. He says. Um, he had to give up his wife because it was a choice between making her happy or making the world happy. <laughs> and uh, he, he says that although he's never had any serious recognition, he's got his own personal award, which is this little tin toy. This, oh, little, yes. this little totem he has of his own ego. Oh, it's cr- cr- cringy. But he's been working as a technical advisor on projects. And mm. again, that folds nicely towards the present because... Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Marvel Studios made WandaVision, a series of uh, in which a couple of the, the Marvel superhero characters are somehow appearing in worlds that look like sitcoms of ages past. And the first couples of sitcoms of the 50s and 60s, they brought in Dick Van Dyke as a technical oh. advisor because he knows how this works and what it's supposed to look like. And they got in a real audience... And they like have, like instead of like CGI for things flying around, they did it on wires, so it all looks a little bit shonky deliberately. So it looks Great. like it was made like then. Great. So oh, that's lovely. That he's like Dick Van Dyke, an ambassador from the past. <laughs> um, but Billy asks asks for work. So, you know, he's he's happy to work. He's ready to work, and. We see the job that he gets on the back of this big appearance. <laughs> it's a wa- yeah. it's a washing powder advert. Mm. And- so I was expecting. I was expecting. Uh, you know the Fast Show Adventures of a Cucumber Salesman with <laughs> with um, 
Arthur Atkinson making an appearance. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a send-up of a, one of those 70s sex comedies. I don't like having it rammed down my throat. <laughs> no, it's it's even worse than that. Yeah. It's, and there's a jazzy version of Yes, We Have No Bananas in the background, and his co-star in the ad is a, um African-American model to show you know, the changing times that, you know... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. And we see in, in real life... He's got a young girlfriend. The the washing powder ad has apparently been very successful, and he's been paid very well for it. But um, he's got this young girlfriend. He's getting married. Her mother is clearly a gold digger and interested only in the cash. It's it's mm. really sad and pathetic. Mm. Um, you could say that he's getting his just desserts, but it's so embarrassing. But again, lack of complete lack of any sort of awareness, any self awareness, any he's blind to all this, isn't he? Yeah. And he's just about to say I do when he collapses. Yeah. Um they're dragged to hospital and they try and they try and fake that he's he said I do so that they can um say that the wedding counted. Um <laughs> But uh, that doesn't work out. As he's convalescing, he's visited by Cockeye, um, who mentions that he's got good colour in him. Um, and um, Billy's made a leather case in his uh, therapy sessions. Mm. At which point, he gets another visitor. Oh, yes. yes. And it's the now adult Billy Jr., played by Dick Van Dyke. And. As he comes over, he's dressed in a particularly idiosyncratic way. It's coded. It's very coded. And Cockeye says, I bet he smells good. Mm. Um, he says he's visiting because he heard his father was ill and he wants to see him and make sure that he was uh, recovering okay and he had everything he needed. And it turns out that he's a fashion designer and he's doing very well. But he has to leave rather quickly. And uh, as he goes, uh, Cockeye says, one day he'll make you a grandfather, you know. And Billy says, don't hold your breath. Mm. It's, I mean, you say it's coded. I wouldn't say it's coded. It's more that they just don't flat out say that the character is gay. And what's the purpose of that scene? It doesn't... Because it's not like Billy has been portrayed as a raging homophobe or anything no. like that prior to this. So why, you know, the son could have just been just as likely have been, I don't know, a welder. He could, yeah, he could. You know? He could just. He could be a regular office guy. He could be an accountant. Joe. He could be a yeah. lawyer. I think mm. it's to say this is something of this is something now of the time. This man is gay, we can't say that he's gay because we're trying to get around the MPAA, but he's, yeah. he's openly gay, he's a fashion designer um, he's dressed quite flamboyantly and no one around seems to have any kind of problem with that just man going about his business he is of the, he is of the now he is of the present Billy is refusing to account for the change in the world when he advertises to be in movies he wants to be in movies. He wants to make another movie the way he used to make movies. He doesn't want to do anything new. No. 
He no, doesn't want to change. Right. He doesn't want to um, evolve or see any kind of personal development because he isn't an artist. Um, Chaplin saw how things were changing and changed the way he did comedy. Laurel and Hardy just said, well, sound's coming in. We're going to be making sound movies. And it was kind of quite just practical. And, and, and his son is successful. He's a creative as well. He's a fashion designer. He's creative. Yeah. He's creating mm. something from scratch. Mm. That's a very good point. Um, Billy isn't. Billy is, Billy is not a creative person. But his son is. And his son's successful. Doesn't he say he's just got back from Paris or something? Or from some mm. far-flung uh, exotic locale? Um, so he's clearly doing very well. Um, yes. But... He's smoking expensive cigarettes. Yeah, as well. any mm. his father has had no influence on his life. It's the mm. the only thing they have in common is that they look alike. It, I mean that's bleak enough, but the, we get the last scene, more or less the last scene. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, it's it's just a very long downward slide. Yeah, Billy's living in this little apartment. And he's making himself his horrid little dinner of eggs and crackers. Of he's cracking a soft, <laughs> cracking a soft-boiled egg into a mug, and then putting in some crackers, and then just mashing the whole thing up, and then eating it. And I thought, well, that's probably a health thing. That his health is so poor that he can't eat anything complicated. No. So it's just no. eggs and crackers all mashed up. And he sets his alarm for four thirty in the morning, and gets out of bed. And turns on the television, and they're saying, "Ah, now in uh, public domain theatre, um, we've got uh, a, f- a film where a yeah, name you, I bet you'd forgotten. It's Billy Bright in his uh, once acclaimed uh, feature film, Forget Me Not." And the film starts to play, and it shows the character Billy leaving home and going out into the world. And there's very sentimental music as he says goodbye to his uh, blind sweetheart, played by Mary. And real Billy is just sitting watching it with this completely blank... Yeah, it's amazing. Empty expression. And he's just staring at the screen like a calcified husk of a person. (laughs) It's, It's like he's having trouble trouble processing what he's watching yeah almost and it just it just fades out on that as you have the sentimental music from the movie and him just sitting there locked in his own bubble of self-loathing and i think i liked that ending i think i did yeah but it was a but what why did they because that's how his life had to end there could only be redemption for him if he acknowledged his own flaws, oh, yeah. and he never yeah. does. He yeah. never yeah. admits these. As we know from his narration, as he's narrating his own funeral, we yes. know he's never going to get better and never going to become a good person. He never gets a moment where there's never a save the cat moment. Like we're told that there has to be in mm-hmm. scripts where mm. we, you know, we see a reason why we should like and engage with the protagonist. No, we never get a reason to like and engage with the protagonist. We get a reason to follow him because he's interesting. 
It's like the rule I've always given about, you know, you don't have to have a likeable protagonist. What about Hannibal Lecter? He eats people. That's awful. But he's really mm. interesting. Mm-hmm. And Billy Bright is a really interesting, engaging character, even though he's an absolute <laughs> Putting it mildly. I'll probably bleep that out. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a really interesting study of that time in cinema. As it's because it's portraying Billy's career as sort of cherry picking all these elements of other screen comedians of the time. It's kind of trying to encompass what screen comedy was like in the 20s and 30s and what the lives behind the screen were like for the performers I think it does very well on that on that count Um, and it works as a bit of ironic wish fulfillment for Dick Van Dyke you know wanting to know oh what would it have been like if I'd been a comedian in the 20s well it would have been like this it would have been absolutely bloody horrible Mm. I think this is the best performance of Dick Van Dyke's career from what I've seen, I would agree. Yeah, and um, and have... that's saying he's really great in a lot of other things. I've never seen him not do a great performance. You know, from Mary Poppins to Columbo, from you know the char- yeah. you know the charming chirpy chimney sweep who everyone loves to a bastard photographer who's shot his wife. It's this that is the most I think fully rounded and fully engaging performance even though he's never not obnoxious. And, it's and completely I actually, believable. I actually think I found older Billy more engaging than young Billy. So I'd pick that. I don't know why. Possibly he was just slightly more comedic. <laughs> I don't know. But when what, Van Dyke doing the old old man performance, he's doing a serious old man performance. He's mm. not playing it in a comedy way and he's thinking this is a dramatic performance so he moves differently he holds himself differently um there's like the the weight of the years of doing all those pratfalls has you know it's probably damaged his back it's damaged his knees he moves in a completely different way that's totally believable those scenes where he's in his, his squalid little tiny little apartment there's a couple of scenes there's a scene at the end of course and then there's the scene where uh, he gets the phone call from Cockeye and goes to meet him in the park. I'd be, I'd be quite happy watching him shuffling around his apartment for an hour and a half, just doing stuff. I'd be quite happy watching that. I, I don't know what it is. It just really, really appeals to me. It would be immensely depressing. <laughs> yeah, but... I mean, I'd, I mean, I'd be quite happy to watch a documentary about Dick Van Dyke's life now. Where he's mm-hmm. like going out and meeting, he's like, oh hey, how are you? Oh, do, do a little dance. Oh, I'm just, <laughs> just I'm off to off to be in a uh, off to be in a new film. Oh, oh, how wonderful to meet you! Oh, this is great. And he always seems so happy and enthusiastic and filled with life and vim and vigor. And and then you which, watch the- which which he isn't in Colombo, is he? He's he's surly and he's miserable, and he's he's browbeaten. He's henpecked husband. Yeah. He, ha- uh, he has a he has a he has a really good reason to divorce his wife. Um, murdering her is maybe a bit over the line. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's a lush, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, she's she's it. she's horrible. 
but also murders kind of yeah that's a bit much I love there's a scene because he's a photographer mm. and, Col- and Columbo's um, worried because Dog hasn't been himself recently and Columbo says to Dick Van Dyke's character is it Paul Paul Galasco he says yeah um, a, a little cocker spaniel that he was keen on has moved away and then Columbo thinks for a minute he says I don't suppose you've got any photographs of <laughs> female cocker spaniels have you you know, I just sort of... I bet that was a Peter Falk ad lib because he would apparently do that a lot. He would just ad lib stuff to annoy the other actors to get to get to get authentically pissed off reactions. Yeah, like like suddenly asking them for a pencil. Oh, do you have, oh, do you have a pencil? Because like not his, like his pen won't work or something like that. Yes, and he would just do that on purpose to annoy them. Or he'd hand them bits because he's always always eating boiled hard boiled eggs. He'd hand them. Bits of shell, yeah, or something, yeah, or pulled receipts out of his pockets, and mm. <laughs> but yeah, I think this is, I think this is a really great film. I think it's, it's such a shame that it's not better known. I mean, if I could, if I can find the film for free on YouTube, that suggests that the rights holders aren't being diligent enough in promoting it or looking after it. Um, and I think that whoever owns the rights should be pushing this more as a great performance and a really unusual, interesting project. I'd love to see a Blu-ray restoration of this. We could still get a Dick Van Dyke commentary out of it. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Quick, people. Yeah. Whoever. I mean, maybe there was one for a Laserdisc years ago, him and Carl Reiner. That would be fantastic. Oh. But... Yeah, this is this is a film that really needs an, a new audience because it's, it's it's great. A lot happens in it, but it's not a complex film. It's not a difficult film, and you can sit and watch it. The proverbial Sunday afternoon film, you can sit and watch it, and and you've still got time to go for a walk before tea time. You have, you have, and I will watch this. I've watched it twice now. I, I'll probably watch it again in a year or so. Yeah, and 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 and, but that's mainly for Dick Van Dyke and for his standout performance. Thanks to Tyler for making time for this recording. Goon Pod, his podcast on the Goon Show and associated things, can be found wherever good podcasts are available. Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and via Acast, with almost 110 episodes available. So please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnos is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, here comes the crap. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.